Good evening. You are listening to a Radiligen Broadcasting premiere podcast, the original recipe, extra crispy, long road to ruin. I am your host, the mandated reporter. I've already popped Sean. I am your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Radilage. And joining me tonight, back again to reclaim his throne, rapid master himself, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Freestyle, the coffee goblin, whatever else he calls himself on Twitter. <laughs> he's he's twitching and scratching, itching and mit- pitching. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, he's Sean Comer, you're not. How do you do, sir? Look at you mining my Twitter bio to try to better... <laughs> refine my gimmick <laughs> you know what's funny and i and i don't want to start us off on yet another legendary opening 20 minute tangent that has nothing to do with what we're talking about but as i've yeah. gone over the archives for the past year and mm. and we've released so many of our old long road to ruins and hearing hearing mm. our intro and you doing your like freestyle rap always cracks me up <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah what yeah that show was- we used to do <laughs> Oh, yeah, I was a different person back then, but mm-hmm. man, yeah, that was um, that was a train wreck of an experiment. <laughs> <laughs> one, one day, man, we're going to have to have you and Jeremy Lambert, like, you know, uh, Robert De Niro and Sylvester Stallone, just just old mules getting back in the ring to have a rap battle, a freestyle rap oh, battle. God I, God, I fucking miss podcasting with Lambert. I wonder I wonder what it would be like now that i'm actually taking this a little bit more seriously and putting and putting about 1500 times more effort into yeah. what i put out on the show i think him and, and samer are actually getting back together again to do something and he i mean he never really stopped um he's oh. been doing fightful select forever now so anyway yeah yeah i know yeah i know now now he's up in the big leagues he got his turn at that Yes, he did. Good for him, anyway. Anyway, so tonight Absolutely. we are talking about the uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There are approximately 800 movies in this series. And one just came out on Netflix about a week or two ago. And so I narrowed this puppy down to three. And I think the three that bear the most conversation uh, for, the, for our purposes. Obviously, the original. The original has a lot of history mm-hmm. to it. It, it, it's a sem- it holds a seminal place, and I think not just mm-hmm. the horror genre but in film in general it it is mm-hmm. it is woven into the fabric of american culture um and so i think so obviously we need to talk about the first one the remake mm-hmm. <clears throat> the remake uh, is sort of a, a middle chapter for me in all of this when i was looking at how i wanted to structure this discussion and what i was going to focus on i was like okay so like with any good franchise uh, it, you know, it, it produces a number of sequels, each which diminishing returns, and then they reboot the whole thing and start over. And inevitably, you have comparisons. You know, it does the orig- does the remake stack up to the original, that sort of thing. So that's conversation worthy. And then the whole reason we're doing this is the new Netflix movie, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that came out February 18th. So we wouldn't be here if it weren't for that, because God knows I wasn't going to do this voluntarily. So <laughs> let's get into... <laughs> Hey, I'm better than I used to be. I used to. I wouldn't have even pitched this originally, but like, oh, oh listen again, listening back to all those years of podcasts, you're like, well, Mark doesn't like the horror. No, Mark's gonna watch no, every no, horror. No, movie no, now. no, this is this is true. Everybody who's maybe just been listening over the last couple of years, first off, hi, how you doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, but second, this would be the kind of franchise that whenever it came up, 
Mark would look for some kind of opportunity when he had a, have a baby. concert or a, a concert <laughs> or a cruise or a baby or some <laughs> other reason. Hey, I want to do the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I, I can't. I'm having a child. Me personally, yeah. I'm birthing yeah. a child. And, and he would then take it and just pawn it off on Robert. <laughs> I, I think the only horror franchise I ever got you to watch was Paranormal Activity. Yeah, I, I went to Scream willingly because I had actually seen those movies, uh, at least a few of them. Mm -hmm. But Paranormal Activity was one that you pitched, and I went, yeah, let's do it. But yeah, you did Saw, mm -hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street, Hellraiser, all those with Robert. Um, yep. Anyway, so let's get into it. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Sean, I'm going to start you off here, and then I'll let you take over like Rover. Uh, October 11th, 1974, it um, was... Produced and directed by Tobe Hooper from a story and screenplay by Hooper and Kim Henkel. It stars Marilyn Burns, Paul A. Partain, Edwin Neal, Jim Saito, and Gunnar Hansen, who plays, uh, who respectively play, portrays Sally Hardesty, Franklin Hardesty, the hitchhiker, the proprietor, and Leatherface. All right, Sean, this thing had a budget of a dollar fifty. They shot, they shot this for what a doctor makes in a single year. And it made uh, $30.9 million in 1974 money. So to say that this was a smash hit and resonated with the people, you got to give the people what they want and they got it here, uh, is an understatement. But tell me all about it. Well, I mean, I don't really have had that many notes about the production, except mm. for the interesting fact that in that in that famous final shot when Marilyn Burns is in the tailgate of the truck and she's just blood drenched and cracking up mm. that could only be called probably about 50% acting mm. because this was just a physically and mentally draining and unpleasant shoot. They for shot this for like, I, I think they shot this on like 16 hour days for like two. I'll, I'll look, I'll check out principal photography in just one second, but I think it was something like, like a really a bridge shooting schedule, like maybe a week or two. Oh yeah. And that whole, and I want to talk about mm -hmm. this when we finally get there after we do the plot summary, but the last 45 minutes of this movie is her screaming, just screaming well, and screaming and running and screaming and being tied up and screaming and making out with a dead guy. It, yikes. I mean, I can imagine why yes. she was like, maybe I need to do something a little light next time. Well, yes, but the but the whole reason I brought up that last mm -hmm. shot specifically mm -hmm. is that what happened was right at the tail end of shooting, after another one of those aforementioned arduous marathon days, mm -hmm. Marilyn Burns gets home, cleans herself up, settles in to decompress for a while. They call her and they say, we didn't get it. Are you we need the final kidding? shot? Dude. We need you to come back. We need you to come back and do it again. So she would say later that Hang on, I, got, I have questions, teacher. I have questions. Do you, yeah. when you say they didn't okay. get it, like it was out of focus, they didn't feel like the shot was when they looked at dailies, they didn't like what they got, or was it like again, the shots are out of focus, there's, there's something wrong with the lighting? Like, what do you mean by they didn't get it? I, I I didn't catch what was I didn't catch what was meant mm -hmm. um, from from the source that from the source that I consulted, mm -hmm. but just that they called her and just essentially all you got to know is they called her back and said we need you to come back we got to redo the last shot, Oof. <laughs> and keep in mind that again 
she's already been putting herself right. through utter hell along with the rest of the cast and crew to get this thing made. And she thinks they finally crossed the finish line. She mm-hmm. can finally just let herself just go limp. She can decompress. For a little bit. Yeah. And then, no, you have to come back. And so she has said that when she is just laughing maniacally at the end in that last mm-hmm. shot, it's very genuine because th- there's nothing there's nothing cathartic or joyful about it. She's just losing it because it's it's done. It's done. It's finally done, and I the, can rest. The work is done. And she's just sitting yeah. in her garden on another planet across the universe. Yeah, but um, but but on a whole other note, though, in mm-hmm. terms of kind of where the movie sits in history, uh, it's it's kind of sound. It kind of sounds cliche to call it a product of its time. It's what we say so often about so many movies, mm-hmm. but in this case, the uh, the OG Texas Chainsaw Massacre really is and the important thing to remember is this is not being made contrary to what a lot of people might assume by some young dumb filmmaker Mm -hmm. who's just looking to make a cheap-ass exploitation flick with a bunch of his friends no no no. Uh, toby hooper was educated in film at UT Austin. Mm-hmm. He was a he, he was a man in his thirties who had lived long enough to definitely accumulate his own worldview. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre is so fascinating, not just because it's pioneering in so many ways, and it definitely mm-hmm. is, but because it's a smarter movie than anybody gives it credit for. And meanwhile. I, I kind of rank it alongside Saw mm-hmm. in terms of movies that disturbing, yes. Creepy, absolutely. Scary, certainly. But as gory as a lot of people seem to remember it, not really. No, there's there's some brutal scenes in this that like got a visceral reaction out of me, and not because mm-hmm. you know the Mamby Pamby I don't like horror stuff, but like I've watched a lot of horror as of late, a lot of stuff in the last few years, and you see a guy get mm-hmm. stabbed, you see a guy get stabbed after a while, you just kind of mm-hmm. become numb to it. Mm-hmm. When he when Leatherface puts one of the kids on the hook for the first time, Melissa could hear me from across the house going, "Oh my god!" And I'm like, I'm like shaking, mm-hmm. and I'm watching it like it is a very visceral aggressive graphic shot and when you think about 1974 special effects they did a lot with so very little well yeah um and that and that's the thing what ends up creeping you out is how much is left to your imagination not how much not how much blood actually floods over the celluloid it is a Uh, um, it is to compare to modern horror this is what horror used to be. It was, we're going to give you just a little taste and let your imagination scare the piss out of you, as opposed to the Rob Zombie method is we're going to shoot body organs at you from across the room and you'll just be overwhelmed with gross. Yeah, I mean, for a movie called The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Mm -hmm. uh, Franklin is the first 
actual chainsaw kill. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's and by that point, he's about the I believe the third victim of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, good ways, good ways into Act Two, I believe. Early Act Three is when he is when he finally bites it in this movie called Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. Um, but but everybody remembers it as being so much more gory. But the reason why I say it's so much smarter is because and why it's so influential and so innovative is the fact that. Number one, this was an interesting period for horror Mm. because prior to this, if you go back to the 60s, horror was really fantastical. Yeah, you could almost say that a lot of it had an almost whimsical quality to it. It could get positively dreamlike if if you were to use the term. And a lot of the actual horror, the monsters, the menace of them, was always something foreign. Uh, so often, you know, the horror of the monster originated from some place far afield from the good old U.S. of A. Um, some usually some some dark corner of Europe or space or something like that. Well, then along comes the seventies and. The 70s, and I, I got I to pause real quick to give some credit to my sources here um, because they absolutely deserve it. Uh, to research this, I went and listened to a few choice episodes of the Dead Meat podcast with James A. Janice and Chelsea Rebecca. They're, they're married now. I don't know if Chelsea has changed her last name, uh, but neither here nor there. Um, I, I specifically, I went and listened to their episode dedicated specifically to Texas Chainsaw, um, to the evolution of the final girl trope, and a little bit of their episode about trans representation. And I cannot recommend all three highly enough. Um, they're utter, they're not just film school grads, they are, they are horror scholars. Uh, they have converted me from just a fan, someone who really enjoys horror, to someone who's deeply enthusiastic about learning more about the genre. So, yes, by all by all means, four stars. Joe Bob says, check them out. Um, um, spend another minute to get to the end of your point, and then we're going to get into the plot synopsis. Yeah, sorry, I'll try to get to it as fast as I can. Yep. Um, but anyway, so the '60s, super dreamlike horror. The the menace is always foreign, far afield from America and American values. And well, the '70s is kind of the hangover from the turbulent, transformative '60s. It's the harsh light of day where we're trying to confront and adjust to all of this change. Um, we're coming off. We're coming off of Vietnam. We're coming off of Nixon. We're coming off of Nixon turning around and telling us peace is at hand and then in the very next next breath, he's fucking bombing Cambodia. Um, at this point, it's, it's the worst economy in American history since the, since the Depression. We're coming off a war that we didn't need to be involved in. The American middle class is bearing the brunt of the hit of everything that we've been having to cope with. And at this point we have met the enemy and they are us. 
um, in in American cinema in general, everything is becoming much less ideal, idyllic, much less dreamy, dreamy, much less far flung, and you can see a lot more movies um, like this one that are confronting the horrors and the state of affairs here in our own backyard and everything and everything else that we've kind of been all those all those shadowy corners that we've been avoiding avoiding looking in well now we kind of have to stare the monsters in the eye that have been they're no longer just lurking under the bed they're standing over us staring us in the face so and, yeah. and we'll be more as we go along, but that's the goal. And, the, and, the 70s is probably one of my favorite uh, eras of cinema just because you use the word hangover. And I think that's that's largely accurate. Mm-hmm. You know, it is it, it's 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 a processing uh, decade for film. You know, it's a film where, again, mm-hmm. filmmakers had very distinct points of view. You know, I, I think about like the deer hunter and uh, deliverance mm-hmm. and dark day afternoon not, and more movies that start with D and, yes, right. So it's that whole era where, you know, these filmmakers had, we took the last thing I'm going to say, and I'm going right into the plot synopsis, but you know, we talk so much on DMU Hollywood about the state of film now and how everything is product. You know, we are creating widgets to sell the masses. And is there room for art? Sure. There's, there's art. We talked about it a yeah. few weeks ago. We talked about um, the French movie Big Bug and, and stuff like that. Um, there's, there's certainly artistic vision out there, but so much of the movie system now is creating things like, you know, superhero movies, you know, big budget, things like that. And it does make me long for this era of filmmaking where you basically had, you know, poets and writers and real artists who were using the medium to uh, bear their souls. Like they had, they had something they needed to say Mm -hmm. and they said it with film. And that's so much of what came out of the seventies. So let's Mm -hmm. get into it. Um, And this is an example of that, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Sally Hardesty, her paraplegic brother, Franklin, and their friends, Jerry Kirk and Pam, visit the grave of the Hardesty's grandfather to investigate reports of vandalism and grave robbing. Afterwards, they decide to visit the old Hardesty family homestead. Along the way, they pick up a hitchhiker who talks about his family who worked at the old slaughterhouse. He borrows Franklin's pocket knife and cuts himself and then takes a single Polaroid picture of Franklin for which he demands money, like you do. When they refuse to pay, he burns the photo and slashes Franklin's arm with a straight razor. The group forces him out of the van and drive on. (laughs) Was this trip really necessary? They stop at a gas station to refill their vehicle. But the proprietor tells them that the pumps are empty. They continue toward the homestead, intending to return to the gas station once it has received a fuel delivery. When they arrive, Franklin tells Kirk and Pam about the local swimming hole. And they go and the couple go to find it. Sexy skinny dipping for sexy teenagers in the sexy movie. They stumble upon a nearby house and Kirk calls out for gas entering through the unlocked door while Pam waits outside. Leatherface! A large mute man wearing a mask made from human skin suddenly appears and kills Kirk with a hammer. Pam enters soon after and trips into a room filled with furniture made from human bones. She attempts to flee, but Leatherface catches her and impales her on a meat hook, (gasps) making her watch as he butchers Kirk with a chainsaw. Jerry heads out to look for Pam and Kirk at sunset. He sees the house and finds Pam still alive. 
inside a freezer. Before he can react, Leatherface kills him. Rather nonchalantly, too. Eh, get back in there. Uh, with darkness falling, Sally and Franklin set out to find their friends. As they, as they near the neighboring house and call out, Leatherface lunges from the darkness and kills Franklin with a chainsaw. Sally runs toward the house and finds dissected, desiccated rather, desiccated remains of an elderly couple upstairs. She escapes from Leatherface by jumping through a second floor window, which was awesome, by the way, and she flees to the gas station. The proprietor calms her with offers to help, but then he ties her up, gags her, and forces her into his truck. He drives to the house, arriving at the same time as the hitchhiker now revealed as Leatherface's brother. The hitchhiker recognizes Sally and taunts her. The men torment the bounding gag Sally while Leatherface, now dressed as a woman, serves dinner. Leatherface and the hitchhiker bring down one of the desiccated bodies from the upstairs, that of their grandpa. He is revealed to be alive when he sucks blood from a cut on Sally's finger. They decide that grandpa, the best killer in the old slaughterhouse, should kill Sally. He tries to hit her with a hammer, but he is too weak. In the ensuing struggle, she breaks free leaps through a window, and flees to the road. Leatherface and the hitchhiker give chase, but the latter is run over and killed by a passing truck. Leatherface attacks the truck with his chainsaw, and then the driver stops to help. He knocks Leatherface down with a pipe wrench, causing the chainsaw to cut his leg. The driver flees, and Sally escapes in the back of a passing pickup truck as Leatherface maniacally flails his chainsaw in the air in anger and defeat. Sean, I'm going to hot take. I love this movie. This is oh, absolutely. This is fan freaking tastic. Let me give you my craft review here and then um sure. give yours and we'll move on to the next thing. I I first of all, I, I didn't realize this about myself until I watched this and I started thinking back to some other stuff that I've seen, like Death Proof by Quentin Tarantino, how much I enjoy like pure 70s style grindhouse. Like, you know, when you when you are as a as a painter, as a filmmaker, and you're like, what can I do to push boundaries? What can I do to make people feel uncomfortable? I'm into it. I, I really am. Like, th there there were certain things about this that I was kind of like, hum hum. But uh, for the most part, I was hooked. Be literally, I don't know. Um, I was hooked because you could absolutely see them going like kind of like with a, with a list of things they wanted to do and just figuring out what the plot of this thing was going to be. And like, it very much unfolds like, a, and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And unlike what we talked about with something previously where it feels like a, uh, an improv exercise where people are just adding stuff to the story and nothing really matches this. this yeah. This is very cohesive. They are, th this is a train going down a dark railroad into a, a land of horror and i'm here for it it was so good um it's funny <clears throat> I, I don't know how much of the the sexy teenagers paying for their sins uh as they as they confront the monster i don't know where that starts in the history of horror uh, but you can definitely see that here uh, they are absolutely playing with that was that i i said i said, I said not here Okay, yeah, absolutely. I would imagine it had to have been before this, but they are absolutely playing with that trope here, um, which is actually one of my criticisms of it. I'm not quite sure what what some of the, <laughs> not quite sure what the poor paraplegic guy did to deserve what he got, but we can talk about it. Um, in any case, I, I just a couple of things I want to mention, and then we can. Um, I'll let you have your say. Uh, mm -hmm. Performance in this felt very gritty and real. I was talking about this with Jason Teasley that sometimes this era, everyone talks in actor voice. You know, uh, I was thinking about like uh, Pam Greer and Coffee. Her delivery is very actor voice. Some of the other ones, you know, yeah. it's 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 very overly stylized and dramatic. 
and that's not what I got here. This felt like almost documentary style of kids, just dopey kids, just chilling in a van. Mm -hmm. um, it, the, the brother is a little overdramatic, but he has to be. He's part of the monster. Um, the, the brother, which the about? the skinny brother that they the hitchhiker, like his oh, performance. Is, yeah, his, yeah, his performance is not realistic, but it's it's good. Um, I'm not complaining about it. All I'm saying is like I'm sitting here talking about this feels very gritty and realistic, and then there's him who's like you know overacting. But that was what was called for, I think. A um, couple of things about I said the brutality in this. It's very in your face. It's very unafraid. You know, I think sometimes now um, convention is the is the language of film, and this was very unconventional. They were doing things that it wasn't even so much about. Let's produce the biggest scare. Let's produce something let, let's produce something that's just so totally gross you can't help but be afraid it all felt very natural that's the mm -hmm. thing about this when you finally get to the conclusion of the movie and they're around the table i was reminded a little bit of uh willy wonka's boat ride you know where he's like and the thing and must be glowing like there's just like like a song and it's building and it's building and crescendo you know and then it's like this poor girl and the dead, nearly dead grandpa sucking on her finger. And I'm like, and I remember thinking, and this is the second time I'm screaming in my bedroom. Oh my God, what the hell am I watching? Like mm -hmm. me, who's seen mm -hmm. everything and doesn't get surprised by much. And I'm like, what is this that I, what is this thing? The credit that I give to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and whether I think people acknowledge it or not, because how often are people deeply thinking about film now is... I think the reason why it resonates with people and why it resonated with me was I haven't quite seen anything like this before. There are imitators. There are people who I think try to recreate this without no knowing why it works. But looking at the authentic piece of art, I, I, it, it, it produced a lot of reactions in me, which is what I want in film. Mm -hmm. I want to be made to feel uncomfortable. And that's what this does. You know, the ca the casting in this spot on you know the, the 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 proprietor the guy that got to play him he's great like he he without going insane and you know going overdoing it gives such a rich performance that is absolutely menacing without being stupid mm -hmm. and uh, i was really into it i also this is the last thing i'll say and i'll take a breath and let you jump in i like leatherface as the monster here's what i like about yeah. leatherface He's not Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers. He's, he's not. Uh, well, not only that, but he's not an unkillable zombie. When he cuts himself nope. with the chainsaw, he falls, and he and you can kind of hear him go. He's mad. He's hurt. You know, and now he's limping around. And you know, it's the compulsion that you get from Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees that he must he must finish what he starts. He must kill them. That's all present in uh in, in leatherface but i'm more interested in him as a character because i know he's just a dude who can be killed you know he isn't he, he isn't bane he isn't on super steroids like you know he's a fat guy chasing after girlies in the woods he can't catch him half the time he's like winging the chainsaw at him because he can't catch him and he accidentally cuts himself and i'm like this is, the, this is the best horror movie I might have ever seen for that reason alone, yeah. that there's an, a palpable sense of menace because the monster 
can in fact be defeated, but it would be difficult because she's a <clears throat> slight girl, not a ninja, not you know, not not you know, not a not Black Widow. She's a girl and she's running for her life, and this is not something she's prepared for. And it all just very much works for me. I think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is absolutely fantastic. What do you? <clears throat> You know, you, you, I'm so excited because you touched on so much that I mm-hmm. want to go into. And I really mulled for a long time over what it is that really makes this work. And I think if I had to narrow it down, I, I could nebulously say it's subversion and perversion. You mentioned that you couldn't quite put your finger on why it was that it was making you uncomfortable. Okay. <clears throat> Pardon my coughing. Um, it's because it takes so many familiar things mm-hmm. and twists them and perverts them. Uh, Toby Hooper, uh, rest his soul, described it as both a story about meat mm. and as having a lot of fairy tale like qualities. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's let's start with those two things. It's a story about meat. Okay, well, you got a family that, as as Nubbin points out, has has always been in meat. But let's look a little closer at who the Sawyers are, and you have that diatribe in the truck about, uh, about oh no 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 that, that that gun's not that gun's no good. You got to use the hammer. You got to do it yourself. Well. Okay, we're talking about a family that feels like it's been displaced and left behind in this dirt poor rural middle of nowhere Texas county. And I mean, that was, they, obviously they weren't all cannibals, but that was a lot of families at that point in the 70s. A lot of families were ravaged both by a combination of this horrendous economy and the advent of a lot of changing industrialization and technologies that made a lot of old ways of making a living, it started to really outmode them and render them obsolete. And if you want a sign of that, you know, culturally, what's one of the, what's one of the things we're most uncomfortable, about, uncomfortable with is cannibalism. Because it's one thing to eat meat. You know, that's natural. All you have to do is look at your own teeth to know that Mother Nature, no matter what diet you might have chosen, what lifestyle, no judgment here, by the way, meant for you to be a carnivore. But the one thing that we kind of instill as the cardinal rule, the taboo, is eating our own cannibalism is meant to be kind of the absolute last of all possible last resorts for survival. And it's apparent that that's where this family is. They, they're, they're doing what they have to do to survive. This isn't science gone wrong. This isn't world domination. This isn't an overt full frontal assault on the children of Elm Street in their dreams to gain revenge. This is a family that will just do whatever it has to in order to survive. It's just that these kids happen to have the bad luck to happen upon them, you know? Um, and in terms of it being a fairy tale, you know, you've got kind of this, this sort of trail of, bro- trail of breadcrumbs, breadcrumbs, 
or candy rather that kind of leads these kids not to a gingerbread house but to a house of horrors and you want to talk about subversion let's keep in mind that at this point in, in american history what was kind of the ultimate status symbol that you had made it that you had fashioned perfect security for you and your family owning a fucking house it's what our parents and grandparents always kind of throw back at my gener at my generation and the generation that came that came after us was well in my day by the time I was your age I owned a four story house with a white picket fence and three dogs and two cats and blah 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 well okay here's that American dream subverted here's that fairy tale subverted. Yeah, they own. Yeah, they own a house, and it's kind of it's kind of their sanctum. You know, this is the the dinner scene is a subversion. It has an almost Rockwellian quality to it, where it's the kind of image where you expect to see Grammy and Pop Pop and Mom and Dad and Betty and Billy and Sparky's over at one end of the table begging for scraps, and there's this big bronze succulent turkey right in the middle and there's stuffing and candlelight and everybody's just gathering around a partake. And here you've got this family that's intent on just not wasting anything because again, this is survival for them. And they're ready to kill and devour Sally. If it means, if it means just being able to get, to get by, um, Drayton Sawyer talks about how, you know, he, he doesn't take no pleasure in killing, but it's gotta be done. And then he, he flat out says he can't do it. Him, he can't do it himself. So it's kind of what he turns to, to grandpa and, uh, and Leatherface to do, um, you know, and people have kind of likened that to the mad tea party scene from mm. Alice in Wonderland. Again, yeah, yeah. Again, it's more subversion of something that's recognizable. It's it's taking something that feels familiar to you, and when you're watching it, you can't place why, but something feels just a little bit off, and it lends the movie just this nice, simple structure that then you can just kind of set it and forget it, and it's going to be recognizable. It's going to be comfortable. People can follow it. And then you can just kind of layer whatever you need to over the top of that. But along with all this, you've got the theme and kind of the parallels that the only thing separating the Sawyers from these kids is one bad fucking day. Yeah. And if you want proof of that, just look at the fact that there are some parallels, some obviously intentional ones between Franklin and Leatherface. You know, Leatherface, again, he didn't go out looking for these kids. Nubbins happened to happen upon them, but Leatherface didn't. He was content to just stay in to just stay in the house. And at one point, after like the second or third person comes in, you see him just kind of collapse and just kind of start having a little breakdown. And just kind of almost sobbing to himself, right? Like, like, he, like just God, just leave me alone. Let just, me do my work. Yes, Let me do just, my important just, work. 
Yes, just let me live. Mm. Um, and meanwhile, you also see Franklin kind of having like, like a similar little break when his disability kind of leaves him separated from everybody else, much like, you know, Leatherface is isolated, alienated, ostracized. When he's down on the porch of the old Hardesty family home because of it, because of his disability. You even hear him kind of musing in the car after Nubbin slices his own hand, cuts him, says, man, he really cut himself good. Yeah, something really have to be wrong with you to make you do that. Do you think you could do it? Like, he's almost uncertain about it. Mm. Um, but like, like, even he's kind of, kind of sort of recognizing is, man, how far am I? How far are any of us really from just kind of being that far off? You know, nubbins when the when hey, the van leaves behind. We'll just we're gonna um we're gonna move on in about forty minutes, so we have about two minutes left, and then we're gonna move on to the next thing. So start to wrap. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We'll yeah we'll do. Um. But you know, it's just you 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 love absolutely all the layers of it and all the thought that goes into a story with such a nice, simple structure. And amidst all of this, you know, I mean, we can't forget that Sally Hardesty and we'll get more into this at the end, believe me, because I have some things <laughs> to say about it, uh, is the originator of the final girl trope. And I oh, would yeah. say definitely to rank up. There's one of the greatest final girls. So God, it is, it is such a near perfect horror movie. Can I um, just real quick, after having watch, watching movies like Black Widow where uh, Scarlett Johansson falls from the moon onto her head and just dusts herself off or, you know, she goes flying out of a window, hits everything on the way down, gets up and shakes it off and walks away. It was nice to see a blonde girl jump through a window on the same floor <laughs> and hurt herself. <laughs> I mean... How far we've come in film. It was just the, the, the simple things in life. If you, a normal human being, yeet yourself through the window, yes, you might break a leg or an ankle or something. These things happen. Not yeah. fall on your head yeah. 20 times and go, it's just a flesh wound. Yeah, yeah. There's the, <laughs> there's uh, there's not a whole lot of plot armor. Oh, <laughs> not here. So uh, I was just reading, um, this is one of the most influential horror movies of all time, which I guess I didn't really realize. You know, again, not a student of horror, I'm sort of learning things, these, thing, these things late in life, but I can see it now. Um, I'm, whenever we, we tackle one of these projects for a podcast, I look at them as learning opportunities, learning experiences for myself. And I don't, and I didn't know what I didn't know about horror until we went started going down these things. And I mm -hmm. am, you know, and I did this just because of the new movie. I needed a way of framing the new movie that it made sense. You know, do I do it as a damn new Hollywood? Do I do it as a triple feature? And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is, this is why, this is why we started Long Road to Ruin. I just didn't know this was something we needed to talk about. And I'm really oh, happy with doing you're it. Right. You're right. And, and it's something that I've started doing too. And, and by all means, you know, I'm, I am throwing this out there. Um, number one, if, if you want to start kind of learning more about the genre, uh, I, I will never praise them and praise them enough for this. Dead Meat is a great place to start, both the YouTube channel and the podcast. But number two, if you want to start talking about some more franchises or even going back and revisiting some, some of them, my man, I'm game. We'll talk. If something happens, happens to catch, happens to catch your eye. Hey, holla at your boy. 
Sean, if there's nothing, if there's nothing I don't do, I always bother you with new ideas. Like Sean, I'm pitching this, I'm pitching that. So you know, um, there's always. All right, why is there such a bad echo now? Um, mute yourself for a second. Uh, yeah. Hang on. All right, there we go. Much better. Um, all right. So, yeah, I'm always pitching Sean ideas. We've got a bunch of triple features coming up actually in the near future for this and that. So, uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, when an idea comes to me, you know, or there's something out there that's new in the world that I want to go back and look at the old, uh, we're definitely going to do that. And I told you I, next year when they do the new Exorcist movie, we will be looking at the old Exorcist. You can bank on that. And I have never seen it. So, again, it's going to be a learning opportunity, learning opportunity for me. For me. Um, that, uh, said, that said, mute yourself again. Mute yourself again. Thank you. Uh, this portion of the podcast is brought to you by Grammarly. Grammarly's AI-powered pro products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggestion style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash W2M network to download Grammarly for free. Moving on to movie number two in our sequence, uh, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2003. This was directed by Marcus Nispel, uh, best known for several high-profile remakes, not, uh, not the least of which was this one. Uh, it stars Jessica Biel, Jonathan Tucker, Erica uh, Learson, Mike Vogel, Eric Balfour, and R. Lee Ermery. Uh, came out October 17th, 2003. It had a budget of $9.5 million, and it made cha-ching $107.4 million. Hey, these movies may suck, but boy, do they make money. Um, so uh, before I jump into the plot synopsis, uh, Sean, give me two to five, two minutes, to five minutes of notes. Okay. <clears throat> Again, not, not a whole lot of notes for this one. Um I don't have much in the way of production except for that uh, there was a bit of a, a spat, a little bit of a dust-up between Gunnar Hansen and the fellow who stepped into the role as Leatherface. I don't, God, I don't even have his name written down. I apologize for that, folks. Like me touting my improved professionalism. Not having that. Mm -hmm. um, but evidently... On set, supposedly, Gunner had kind of given his blessing to this man's new portrayal of Leatherface. And then uh, Gunner supposedly started going out of his way to really take his piss, take the piss out of this kid's performance. Uh, so much so that, yeah, I guess there was some bad blood between them going right up to Gunner's unfortunate passing. And I think that when Gunner passed and someone mentioned it on um, the new guy's Facebook, he just replied with something to the effect, to the effect of lol. Mm. Um, which, yeah, I mean, I, I get it. Gunner is definitely my preferred Leatherface and something that really goes drastically underestimated is just how much the actor behind the monster brings to the role in these kind in these kinds of movies and how if you really know what to look for you can spot differences between say kane hotter and absolutely anybody else who ever portrayed jason uh famously new line 
um, when they felt that Robert England was asking for too much money for Nightmare on Elm Street 2, tried to bring somebody else to play Kruger. Um, I think it was actually one of Robert's stand-ins, if I recall correctly, something to that effect. And the notes that came back on it uh, from the stand-in himself were like, you're not going to do better than Robert. Like I, like, I can't bring to this role what he can. But at the same time, it's it's unfortunate because I thought that this was this this new Leatherface was absolute was absolutely fine for for what the movie was. And as we're about to illustrate, this movie is something that while it pays homage, is decidedly different in a lot of key ways from the original. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, this. say this. Um, you can do a cover of a song that's not out of bounds, but you can either just replay the song and it sounds just like you're not really adding to. It's like it's like the one guy who made fun of us on TikTok. Um, you're not really adding anything to the conversation. You're you're just replaying the song. the song. Someone made fun of us on TikTok. No, 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 no. He, no, was, no, making, he was making. He was making fun of people who just duet. And he was making fun of people who just duet other people, but they don't talk. They don't add anything to the conversation. He was like, all your content is trash. And so now the video has four or five of us, including myself, all just nodding their head. Um, so anyway, uh, my point being that, and I'm going to get into the plot, go right into the plot with this. This Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a competently made cover of the original that misses all of the finer points that made the original a seminal picture. This is not, a, I wouldn't call it a mockbuster uh, style because there's, there's no parody involved necessarily, but it, 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 here's what I say about a lot of films now. This is, this, this more makes my point. Sometimes we remake stuff and we think we know why the original worked. And then we go to do that. And what we have is an empty shell of a film. And, and while the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is competent enough, it misses all of the finer points of the original that made that work, making the whole thing dull and shallow and empty and just sort of a, you know, paling in comparison. If you watch it by itself, it works just fine as an average slasher flick. And I think Jessica Biel holds a lot of the movie on her shoulders as she plays a capable but distressed uh, damsel. Um, she, you know, she, I think she, she's a proper girl to follow. You want her to live through the night, which, you know, which helps. Um, but that's all there really is here. Those we talked about with like the dinner scene in the first one, it lacks all of those things. It lacks a real, in my opinion, that real guttural, ethereal feeling, that fairy tale that you were talking about of the first one. And it just says, what we want to see is people chop with chainsaws. That's what we came here for. That's what the people want. And it's like, no, 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 no. There's more here. And you're, you think you know what makes a Texas Chainsaw Massacre work, but you missed the point. And that, you know, kind of my pre-review of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2003. But here's what happens in this movie. <laughs> Stop me if you think you've heard this one before. On August 18th, 1973, five young adults, Erin, her boyfriend Kemper, and their friends Morgan, Andy, and Pepper, 
are on their way to a Leonard Skinner concert after traveling to Mexico to purchase marijuana. While driving through Texas, the group picks up a distraught and severely traumatized hitchhiker they see walking in the middle of the road. And they try to talk with the hitchhiker who speaks incoherently about a bad man. She pulls a loaded revolver from between her legs, which is where you should keep such things, and shoots herself in the mouth. The group goes to a nearby diner to contact the police where a woman named Luda May tells them to meet Sheriff Hoyt at the mill. Instead, they find a young boy named Jedediah who tells them Hoyt is at home getting drunk. Aaron and Kemper go through the woods to find his house, leaving Morgan, Andy, and Pepper at the mill with Jedediah. They come across a plantation house, and Aaron is allowed inside by an amputee named Monty to call for help. Kemper goes inside to look for Aaron and is killed by Thomas Hewitt, also known as Leatherface, who hits him with a sledgehammer, which sprays blood on a nearby television. He then drags his body into the basement to make a new mask. Meanwhile, Hoyt arrives at the mill and disposes of the hitchhiker's body. After Aaron discovers that Kemper is missing, she and Andy go back to Monty's house, and Aaron distracts him while Andy searches for Kemper. When Monty realizes that Andy is inside, he summons Leatherface, who attacks him with a chainsaw. Aaron escapes and heads towards the woods, but Leatherface hacks off Andy's leg with a chainsaw. He then carries the horrified and begging Andy to the basement, where he impales him on a sharp meat hook before rubbing salt on his stump of a leg. Afterwards, he wraps it with butcher paper and then ties it with human hair. Aaron makes it back to the mill, but before she and others can leave, Hoyt shows up. After finding marijuana on the dashboard, he orders Aaron and Pepper to get out of the van, gives Morgan the gun he took from the hitchhiker, and tells him to reenact how she killed herself. Morgan disturbed by his demands attempts to shoot him, but the gun is unloaded. Hoyt then handcuffs Morgan and drives him back to the Hewitt house, taking the van's key with him. Back in the sinister house, Andy awakens after passing out from pain and desperately tries to lift himself off the meat hook but Leatherface has booby-trapped it, causing him to impale himself further on the hook. Aaron and Pepper are tracked down by Leatherface, who is wearing Kemper's mask, faces a mask, and when Pepper attempts to run, she is killed by Leatherface, who cuts her in half. Aaron runs and hides in a nearby trailer, belonging to an obese middle-aged woman known only as the Tea Lady, and a younger woman named Henrietta, who gives her tea that has been drugged, like you do. Aaron discovers that they have kidnapped the hitchhiker's baby, but passes out before she can escape. Aaron wakes up at the Hewitt house, surrounded by the entire family. Leatherface, his mother, Luda May, Hoyt, Monty, and Jedediah. Luda May explains to Aaron that Leatherface was tormented his whole life because of his skin disease that left his face disfigured. And she felt that no one cared about her family besides themselves. Don't you understand? Aaron is taken to the basement where she sees the remains of Leatherface's victims. She finds Andy and kills him to the end, his suffering after failing to help him off the meat hook. Afterwards, she finds Morgan handcuffed in a bathtub. Jedediah, who does not agree with his family's actions, leads them out of the house and distracts Leatherface long enough for them to escape. Aaron and Morgan find an abandoned shack in the woods, and they barricade themselves inside. Leatherface breaks in and discovers Aaron, but Morgan attacks Leatherface, who hangs him from a chandelier by his handcuffs and cuts through his groin with the chainsaw. Aaron escapes into the woods with Leatherface in tow. She finds a slaughterhouse and attacks Leatherface with meat cleavers chopping off his right arm. Aaron runs outside and flags down a trucker whom she convinces to drive away from the Hewitt house, but he stops to find her at the eatery. Luda May and Hoyt talk to the trucker while Henrietta watches the baby, but when Henrietta goes outside to join their conversation, Aaron sneaks the baby out of the eatery and places her in the sheriff's car. Aaron hotwires the car and Hoyt tries to stop her, but she runs him over repeatedly until he is dead. Leatherface suddenly appears in the road and slashes the car with his chainsaw, but Aaron manages to escape with the baby, and he watches in frustration as she drives away. Two days later, two investigating officers are killed by Leatherface 
while they are doing a crime scene investigation of the Hewitt house. And a narrator states, the case still remains open, Sean Coma, don't you understand? Sean, I want you to jump in here with one thing and one thing um, to start with, and then you can go into your, your craft review of this. I've kind of stated my general opinion. Did this remind you of the Nightmare on Elm Street remake where they tried to make Freddy a sympathetic villain? Because I've now heard two different podcasts where you complained about that. Unmute yourself. And um, and I was thinking, and I was like, I wonder, I wonder if he I has the same reaction, the same reaction to... to what they did what to Leatherface in this one versus what they did with Freddy. Freddy. I didn't do anything. Uh, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> um, not really. It didn't bother me as much because Leatherface did have a little bit of a sympathetic bent to him in the first movie. And in fact... You know, one of the things that's missing from this, from this movie, is the the context of the family doing what it has to do to survive because it's been left behind by you know the borderline apocalyptic rigors wrought in rural America by that utterly shitty mid seventies economy. The really sad part is. We would get that context in the prequel, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning. Because it opens with, with you know, Thomas Hewitt and his dad and his daddy being fired from the meatpacking plant, which we see briefly in this movie. Um and it would have lent this just a little bit more substance and a little more connective tissue to the first one. Uh, had they just instead managed to work that into this plot, as opposed to needing a whole ass other vastly inferior movie to get that. Um, and, you know, one of the one of the things that I do like about it, and, and I'll start with the positives, is the fact that going back to the original, uh, it's one of two classic American horror movies inspired by the crimes of um, Ed Gein, uh, the butcher of the butcher of Plainview, very famously uh, was not was not a serial killer, was not a mass murderer. He only killed two people, but he famously was also a grave robber who would take dead bodies, make various arts and crafts out of, out of them. But one of the legacies of that crime, of those crimes, in addition to you know, inspiring Psycho and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, was the American shock that this was still kind of in the halcyon days of the 50s and 60s when there was this disbelief that the peaceful, perfect American Midwest could harbor such atrocities. And, you know, it was an idyllic time. As long as you were, you know, of a fairly affluent background, white, Christian, heterosexual, 
middle class, as long as you kind of met all of that. Um, another thing kind of that kind of connects both, although much more with the former that with with the original than this one, is the whole fact that it touches upon America having this really two-faced relationship with its middle class, particularly if you're of for those of, of a higher economic bracket. Because out of one side of their face, you hear that the working class, the middle class, is the backbone of America, salt of the earth, of the earth people. Without them, America just doesn't work. And that's all well and good with them right up until they have to come in contact with the middle class. And then it's a kind of horror and revulsion and they kind of can't wait to distance themselves again as as much as possible. And that is very much an American legacy and one that continues to this day. There, there's no saying that it isn't. Um, so... But I definitely felt that much more in that one than in this one, especially since they try to kind of touch on that bitter sense of alienation. But it's more due to express just in terms of Leatherface's skin condition than necessarily it being a sense of, oh, America doesn't need families like the Hewitts until they need them. Um, it, it's there, but it's not quite as thick, and it's it's vastly inferior. Uh, it is a gorgeously shot movie in all of its brutality. Um, it, it feels so weird for, for something so visceral to be called a, a feast for the eyes. But really, in terms of the way it's shot, it is. It just flat out is. That zoom out shot through the hitchhiker's head wound is one of my favorite moments in any horror movie I've ever seen. And that's saying something because I've seen some doozies. Um, it's, it's brutal. It's perfectly executed. It's effective. It's jarring. It's everything you could want a moment like that to be. Um, I guess you could say that Arlie Ermey is kind of our stand-in for Drayton Sawyer in this in this one, um, such as such as it were, uh, as as he is. You know, for anyone who's ever seen Full Metal Jacket, he is an incredibly effective, sadistic, unhinged villain um, who's just kind of in command of these kids, of course, right up until he isn't. But he is, he's suitably menacing in a way that's an exaggeration of speaking from experience, how a lot of small town rural law enforcement can be, especially when you kind of get that sort of that far afield from civilization and a sense of well, who's gonna do well, who's gonna do shit to me? And you know, spoiler, of course, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning, we learned that he's not the sheriff whatsoever. Um, he has killed the sheriff 
again, to absolutely no consequence. And just kind of taking the car, taking the uniform. It's like, well, guess I'm the law now. Do, do, do. <laughs> um, uh, Jessica Beale is a is a fantastic final girl, even if she doesn't suit the trope too exactly. Again, I'll, I'll get back to this because we're going to come full back around to Sally Hardesty uh, when we talk about the Netflix movie, and I and I kind of want to save that. Um, unlike the original, yeah, gotcha. Um, this one does not leave much to the imagination. Uh, the the gore, the vis, the gore, the viscera, the kills, everything is right front and center, with the exception of a couple of shots, and that's kind of frustrating because in those couple shots where they do show a little bit of restraint, it's super effective. It's actually kind of a relief. It's a nice throwback to the original. So it's you mentioned the Nightmare on Elm Street one, and I, I guess in summation, yeah, it, it really kind of like that. It apes a lot of the most memorable moments right up to, you know, pointing the camera straight up Jessica Beale's ass crack. Um, <laughs> during one shot, and it it tries to do its own thing to varying degrees of effectiveness, but and I appreciated how brutal and visually impressive it it was, and great sound design and all that. But really, at the end of the day, I I missed Toby Hooper and Kim Hankel's intelligence. And in an intent and thrift and kind of careful planning that really permeated the first one so much. I just want to add um, one thing to this and then we'll move on. It's not that I didn't like it. It's fine. And I think if I've never seen the first one, it works as a perfectly acceptable horror slasher movie. <clears throat> I think it lacks the point of view of the first one. I think it's horror for horror's sake. And so it's, bereft of the gravitas of the first one you know i gushed about the first one a lot for that reason and then the second one it was like this is fine and there's some interesting imagery in this um i did want to talk about the characters really really quick and then i'll stop and we'll move on i was thinking about this you know I, you want just jessica bill's not a bad person you want her to live um what I, I kept being reminded of the blair wish project while i was watching this there's this movie, if you cut the bickering, is 20 minutes long. <laughs> it's like there's just arguing and arguing and arguing, <laughs> and it never ends. And it's like not and and the I can't remember the one, the, the one who almost lives to the end, the, the douchebag. Like he uh with with the frizzy hair, the one who doesn't have a girl in this, he makes the most sense. He's like, Why are we picking up rando, you know, hitchhiker? <laughs> and they're like, Because it's the humane thing to do. Man. Like, we don't need it. I want to go to see Skinner. And I'm like, I'm with you, brother. But you should also take care of your fellow man. And oh, no, it's caused the horror. She shoots herself and everything goes downhill. And so he didn't know that he was going to be right, but he was right. Which I thought was an interesting take. And then as the movie progresses, everyone's like, we should do the right thing. And he's like, no. No, no, no. Throw the body on the side of the road. Wipe the window down and let's go. And you're like... That's not the right thing, but boy, would that have been the better decision with all things considered. But you don't know that without the benefit of hindsight. And I just, 
I don't know what the writers were going for here because on the one hand, it feels like you're supposed to hate him and want him to be chopped to bits with a chainsaw. On the other hand, he's the only one out of all of them making any degree of sense. So I, I just, I thought it was mildly amusing. Um, the hook for me in this one doesn't work nearly as well as the hook in the first one. They tried. I think they gave it their best shot, you know, um, but there's putting a slight girl on a hook. The first time you see it gave me the willies. What, you know, putting a muscular manly man on the hook and him doing, you know, like, you know, just flashing those oily, sweaty muscles as he tries to pull himself off the hook. I'm like, I get it, but no, <laughs> like doesn't, it's not the same. Um, no, no, no. Lastly, the final, <laughs> when sitting to do a remake, you're like, well, how are we differentiating ourselves? What are we doing here? Well, we're not going to have a point of view. That's how we'll differentiate ourselves. Okay, cool. What else? Well, we need a really, really good action sequence at the end because we can't just do what we did with the first one where the girl just runs for 45 minutes like Forrest Gump screaming the entire time. We have a tea party and she runs again. Um, you know, that we can't do that. So what are we going to do? The one choice they made having it end in the meatpacking place in terms of symbolism and themes and whatnot kind of works for me. Um, and, and their use of the, de of the cow meat, the beef, the hanging beef in the plant, it was cute. Um, it's not the world's greatest third act I've ever, you know, final conflict I've ever seen, but it was adorable that they tried. I think Jessica Bilda, you know, <laughs> I had a thought and I'm not usually the guy who brings this up. I find this term to be somewhat irritating, but I know it's out there. It is a thing. It's certainly a topic for conversation. But picture this, if you will, Jessica Beale, a slight girl, a pretty girl. She's standing, you know, running for her life. She hides among the beef. The beef is cold. The air is chill. There is oxygen rising and smoky. And the camera rests comfortably on her frigid bosom. Nipples. <laughs> Just nipples. They're coming at you in 3D. And I was like... That has to be an example of the male gaze, right? That absolutely has to be like, like, listen, we need a good tit shot here. Jessica, you down? You're, you're paying me. I, I can't back out now. Do I have to take my top off? Is Leatherface into that sort of thing? Are we doing boobs akimbo? No, Jessica, just keep your top on. Make sure it's still tied the entire time as you're running in peril, by the way. <laughs> like I don't know if you've ever seen a girl who, like ties their shirt, but it comes undone if you don't keep messing with it. But nope, it was tightly, tightly tied around her her midriff. It's <laughs> the most unbelievable thing about this movie. Um, anyway, I just I had to mention it because it because if I'm noticing it, it, it it's like come on guys, this isn't. The expectation was in the middle of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2003. The men were going to pull off their pants like Lex Luger and start masturbating. Like, let's let's pick pick a, <laughs> pick a yeah an aesthetic and stay with it for God's sakes. Anyway, uh, those, those are my thoughts on. Uh, I liked it, but it was meh. Uh, not as good as the first one, uh, as we say with a lot of remakes. And that, folks, is our review of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2003, which was brought to you by one of our great sponsors here, Grammarly. Nope, nope. Amazon Music. Sorry. 
did that one already. Amazon Music. Yes, sir, Bob. Amazon Music Unlimited is giving away a free 30-day trial of their service. Head over to getamazonmusic.com slash W2M Network. Again, that's getamazonmusic.com slash W2M Network to get your free trial of the 30-day unlimited service. Uh, you can stream all you want, thus the unlimited. Uh, and after 30 days, if you like it, you keep it. If not, you uh, you can cancel it. No fuss, no muss, no contracts, no pains in the butt. Again, get amazonmusic.com slash W2M Network. Click it. Helps us out. Helps you out. Who doesn't love free music? All right. And finally, 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 Chris Bailey, Chris Bailey, Chris Bailey. We come to it, Sean. The Texas. No, not even. They cut the the. They didn't have the budget for the. <laughs> Chainsaw Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022. The face of madness returns. Sean Coma, don't you understand? So fuck this movie. What were your expectations? I had no idea what to expect. I, I purposely avoided reviews and trailers and any articles that previewed it because I was just so intrigued to see what Netflix might be able might be able to produce here. And I didn't even know that I necessarily blame Netflix for it. Um, but I fuck sure didn't expect this. You want to talk about missing the fucking point. I'll take the sequel that had the goddamn Illuminati subplot. <laughs> Bring that on. I'll trade you. Take this movie away and never fucking speak of it again. I will take Matthew McConaughey's fucking sand people impression. And that weird and that weird noise he makes when he jumps down from the window onto the fucking truck. This is what you've done. You've made me want to watch that shit. Okay. Let's talk a little production here, and then we'll get into the plot. I think the faster we get through this, the both of us, the better for the both of us. Uh, all right. So this was directed by David Blue Garcia, who does not have a Wikipedia link, which is always a telltale sign that your production might be in hot water. Uh, screenplay by Chris Thomas Devlin from a story by Fide Alvarez and Roto Sagai uh, Seyus. Uh, it's a sequel to the 1974 classic that we talked about overall and the ninth installment overall in the franchise. It picks up several decades after the original film. The story focuses on the serial killer Leatherface targeting a group of teens and coming into conflict with a vengeful survivor of the previous murders. The project is a joint venture production between Legendary Pictures, who brought you Godzilla versus Kong and all of that, Exerbia Films, and Bad Ombre. Ombre. The film stars Sarah Yarkin, Elsie Fisher, Mark Burnham, Mo Dunford, Neil Hudson, Jessica Elaine, Elwin Fier, Jacob Lattimore, and Alice Kriege. Uh, th there's no budget listed. <laughs> it doesn't make a 90-minute runtime, which is some sad shit in 2022. And uh, it was generally received. It was generally negative uh, received by uh, critics. I just want to read this one last thing here, which was always cracks me up because, like, we reviewed Red Notice, and Red Notice sucked. But it was like the most watched movie in the history of Netflix. So Netflix, you know, really doesn't have a lot of uh, an argument for making good movies because people, because they get to watch it at home and use your subscription, will just about watch anything to the point where 
Five days after its release, the film still ranked number one on Netflix's top 10 list in the United States, Brazil, and Saudi Arabia, among other regions. You understand what I'm trying to tell you? People will watch anything if they're already paying for it or don't have to pay for it at all. It doesn't matter if the quality is any good. And sometimes when the quality is bad and word of mouth is bad on it, people will tune in to watch because they want to see how bad it is. You know, or better, even better, they want to argue with the critics about it because that, because all critics are terrible and everyone hates them. So, and they don't know how to, and they don't know what they're talking about with movies. Don't you understand? Everyone else is so smart than, than the critics. So it's like, well, I got to see this thing so I can tell they, you know, the, the people on Rotten Tomatoes, they don't know what they're doing. So it ends up becoming popular next. And Netflix is like, yeah, we don't care about quality. We care about content. So here we are. This is content. The chainsaw movie. Let's get into it. Um, all right. <clears throat> Nearly 50 years after Leatherface's killing spree in 1973, young entrepreneurs Melody Dante, Melody's sister Lila, and Dante's girlfriend Ruth travel to the abandoned Texas town of Harlow to auction off old properties to create a trendy, heavily gentrified area, like you do. While inspecting a dilapidated orphanage, the group discovered it is still occupied by an elderly woman called Ginny. When she claims she has papers to prove she still owns the property, an argument breaks out. Briefly interrupted by a silent and towering man from upstairs, Ginny then collapses from a heart attack and is rushed to the hospital, accompanied by Ruth and the man. An investor, Catherine, along with a group of potential buyers, arrive in Harlow in a large bus, distracting Melody and Dante. Meanwhile, Lila strikes up a friendship with a local mechanic, Richter, and reveals she was a survivor of a school shooting, leaving her terrified of guns, don't you understand? Ginny dies en route to the hospital. Ruth texts Melody before the man goes berserk and murders the officer driving the ambulance, leading it to crash. When Ruth awakens, she witnesses the man revealed to be Leatherface. <laughs> Cutting off Ginny's face to wear as a mask, like, like he does. Ruth manages to radio for help before being killed by Leatherface, who then makes his way back to Hollow. Because he is compelled, don't you understand? During a property auction, Melody reads Ruth's text and prepares to leave with Lila. Richter overhears them talking about Ginny's death <clears throat> and, <clears throat> and confiscates their keys, agreeing to give them back once they provide proof that they rightfully removed Ginny from her home. Melody and Dante return to the orphanage to find them. Meanwhile, Sally Hardesty, yay, she's back and she's better than ever. The sole survivor of Leatherface's previous killing spree and now a battle-hardened Texas ranger who hunts Terminators in her spare time. Um, learns of Ruth's attack and heads out to investigate. At the orphanage, Melanie discovers the papers and realizes that Ginny was wrongfully evicted. Leatherface arrives at the orphanage and attacks Dante, mutilating him. Melanie hides as Leatherface retrieves his chainsaw from his bedroom. A rainstorm hits hollow as night falls and Catherine and Lila take cover in the bus. With the buyers, Dante manages to stumble out of the orphanage where he is discovered by Richter before bleeding to death. Richter enters the orphanage and is attacked and killed by Leatherface. Melanie retrieves the car and bus keys from his body before fleeing the house, reuniting with Lila. They get on the bus with Charles Dutton and many other black people going to the Million Man March, pursued by Leatherface, <clears throat> who begins slaughtering all of the people like he does. <clears throat> including Catherine. Melody and Lila escape the carnage and come across Sally, who locks them in the car before entering the orphanage to finally confront Leatherface. <clears throat> she holds him at gunpoint, demanding he remembers the pain he inflicted on her. 
and her friends, but is met by only silence because, you know, Leatherface. Uh, and he walks away. Leatherface then attacks the sister in Sally's car, but they are saved by Sally, who shoots him. Sally gives Melody the keys to drive away before pursuing Leatherface. Leatherface ambushes and fatally injures Sally. Melody hits Leatherface with Sally's car, because this is becoming a thing, before crashing into a nearby building. Melody is trapped, but orders Lila to run away. When Leatherface appears, Melody apologizes for what they did to Ginny. As he moves in to attack, Lila attempts to shoot him, but her gun is empty, because duh. Sally shoots him instead, and he flees. Before dying, she encourages Lila not to run, and she will be forever haunted by him. Lila then takes Sally's shotgun and pursues Leatherface into an abandoned building, where she is ambushed and attacked. Melanie arrives and takes Leatherface's chainsaw before using it to uppercut him, knocking him into a pool of water where he sinks to the bottom. They escape, and Lila finds Sally's hat and puts it on her before starting the morning drive. However, Leatherface emerges like a horror monster proper. Still alive and drags Melody out of the car before decapitating her with his chainsaw. A horrified Lila watches as the self-driving car takes her out of Harlow. Leatherface dances in the street with his chainsaw in Melody's head. And a post-credit scene shows Leatherface making his way to the house where his original massacre took place. Jesus Christ, Sean. Jesus Christ. With all due legitimate respect to Linkara, I say this. This movie sucks. It's one thing to not understand why the predecessor in your series worked. This movie doesn't even understand why Halloween 2018 worked. Because it tries to ape the same final girl survives and comes back for one last epic battle plot line. Jamie Lee Curtis was battle-hardened, but she was also afraid, broken, shaken, but still knew what had to be done. You took Sally Hardesty, the original final girl, and converted her into an absolute dipshit who has Leatherface at one point, at gunpoint, dead to rights, and stands there and monologues at him. You took one of the original horror semblances of grit and survival and had her stupidity ensure that she was going to get raped with a chainsaw and flung onto a pile of garbage to die. Fuck you on behalf of Texas Chainsaw Massacre fans and anyone who respects the legacy of Marilyn Burns. But let's not stop there, shall we? How about the fact that in lieu of an actual thoughtful cultural commentary, you instead simply resorted to own the libs, the movie. You decided to make everybody a fucking caricature, something that the first movie didn't do once. The first movie might have portrayed a class of cultures, yes, but at no point was it ever demeaning or insulting, something you can probably chalk up to the fact that Toby Hooper was at least a proud native Texan. Everything in this movie is a cliche, right down to the bus full of millennial real estate real estate mavens to be pointing cameras at Leatherface, a man with a chainsaw, and thinking that anyone in their right mind would just declare, we're getting you canceled, bro. First off, suck my cock. We don't talk that way. That's the way a Republican 
thinks that people my age with my political leanings talk. It's past the point of even being laughable by now. Eat a dick and make a fucking meal out of it. Second, the actual massacre that follows is utterly horrendous. It's unwatchable on the scale of a Michael Bay fight scene. That's about how fucking bad it is. The characters in the first movie were at least relatable. They at least felt natural. Nobody in this movie feels natural. It's unclear who at any point we're supposed to relate to or attach ourselves to because even the main characters, again, you've reduced to asinine caricatures, one of whom they actually had the gall to reduce being the survivor of a school shooting, something that is tragically all too common in our country to a throwaway piece of background. What? So you could try to make some kind of good guy with a gunpoint? Jesus. Jesus fucking Christ. Did you read the script before you agreed to it? And if so, how many fucking times? Did you have somebody above a third grade reading level maybe go over it? Even your right-wing characters are laughable and not even in a good, amusing way. I really thought that maybe you were setting up the mechanic to be the aforementioned good guy with a gun. But, nope, you just reduced him to Chainsaw Fire, too. What was even the fucking point? The whole thing is an affront to the original. And the really sad part is you can make a good horror movie about, about the, the price of gentrification. I mean, granted, it's a horror comedy, but I would rather go watch Vampires versus the Bronx again. Um, that movie was Candyman, and up until the idiotic ending, was absolutely speaking rather coherently about the dangers, of the, the issues inherent in gentrification and what is going on in the black community vis-a-vis, you know, the rising culture of moneyed blacks versus people who live in those communities who have not had an opportunity to pull themselves out of poverty. What does this do, the conflicts that it creates? Candyman spoke to all of that, and then it goes off the deep end, but we've already done that podcast. Well, that's actually a great point. I hadn't even thought of that. Thank you. And in fact, both of the movies, just to bear the title Candyman, again, we're just going to disregard the two sequels because you, but both the original Candyman and the most recent one, they did it in their own way, but they both did it spectacularly well. They did it tastefully. The, the most recent one was a bit on the nose for my liking, but it didn't mean that it didn't make valid points. This movie just, it's an example of everything that the sequels and the remakes have just gotten wrong, just one movie after another, after another, because... They because the sequels really did reduce it down to we're gonna do with a chainsaw. 
which was never what the first movie was meant to be. There's nothing subtle here. There's nothing thoughtful. There's no commentary. Again, it's the best way I can describe it. It's Overlibs, the movie. And fuck it. Fuck this movie. Fuck this movie. Fuck this movie. I would rather watch that utter garbage with Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger again than ever subject myself to this. And if ever there was a movie that deserved to be removed from canon in the style of most of the Halloween sequels, it's this one. I'm only going to add the following and then we're going to wrap because we're about where I wanted to be at the end of this podcast. This is yet another mindless, brainless, just content for content's sake. We have an endless distribution system with an infinite shelf and we need shit to fill it. And here's the thing. And I want to make I want to make sure I make this point. Something I talk about with Robert all the time. That's fine because the vast majority of people out there want easily consumable junk content. And now there's a stream right into your home that's as passive and as easy as can be to get you junk content. And again, Sean and I, you know, we started Long Road to Ruin because we were both film people, uh, each in our own way, and we were having film discussions. We want Damn You Hollywood is film discussion. And so, yeah, it doesn't really work for a lot of us. Um, we need something that's a little bit more ascendant, a little bit more, that has a little bit more grit, has a little bit more meat to it. No pun intended. Uh, but for the vast majority of people, and this is just something I've had to understand about where we are now in the culture, is everyone just wants passive, passable, easy to digest junk junk culture. And in that sense, nobody's thinking about this movie that hard. Like this time we've spent dissecting it and deconstructing it is more thought that anyone, including the people who made it, put into this. They said, we need to reflect what's going on in the culture right now who cares that in a year or two, this will have aged poorly and will understand because the culture will have moved so fast and have moved on from this point that it'll seem like it's ancient. It's, it's so funny because the 1974 movie still resonates and it still has cultural, um, has cultural sway, cultural relevance. And this one won't be relevant in two years, if that long. And I'm giving it a little extra credit. Um, so, but that's it. You know, I, I know people are going to sit and watch this and I know people are going to be like, it's great. A guy got hit with a chainsaw. I'm going to go on Snapchat now and send pictures of my dick to people. I mean, that's it. That's where we are in this culture. <laughs> so I, it's, it's hard for me to fight against that and be like and rail and get all angry. Like I get, I totally get where Sean's coming from and he has every right to feel that way. For me, when I, the, the movie was over, I was left with a big sense of meh. You know, I get it. I know people are going to like this because they're not going to think that hard about it. And, it, you know, and all they wanted to do was see is see people get chopped up with chainsaws. And so they did. And that is it. That is the tech. That is Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022. Um, this is the very definition of the long road to ruin. <laughs> Nine films. This is where we landed in a gutter, bullet in the head, pants down. <laughs> just what, just keep, throw some dirt on it. We're done. Or not, let's do another one. And it'll be equally as stupid, if not worse. All right. Uh, with that said, Sean? You finally found a movie to bring angry Sean back. (laughs) 
I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure it could be sure it could be done. I'm guessing this is supposed to be just kind of like my final word on the whole friend on the whole franchise. Or just plugs. If, I was gonna. Well, I mean, if you give me, if you can give it to me in like fifty words or less, and then go right into your plugs. Go. All right. The first one is an utter classic. Every horror fan worth their salt should watch it at least once. We didn't cover it, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 um, is legitimately outstanding. It does actually carry on with the story of the Sawyer family, and it kind of bookends uh, Carol J. Clover's definition of definition of the final girl and its evolution. Um, absolutely everything else except for the remake we talked about tonight, I cannot urge you enough to skip it, and especially forget that this one, that the 2022 massacre, and that's an app name, uh, ever even fucking happened. Um, oh, and as far as plugs go, um, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Comer Codex. If you want to, see, if you want to see lots and lots of Food porn, talk about yoga, my love of being out on out on my bike, video games, all of that. Um, also, I am back to streaming on Twitch three nights a week, usually Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and whenever the urge just happens to strike me at twitch.tv slash Comer Codex. Um, expect a variety stream, lots of story-based games. Right now I'm on my second playthrough through Wolfenstein, The New Order, but I also love to throw in some Overwatch and Daylight whatever I can. Hey, if you enjoyed Sean tonight, uh, Sean makes a monthly or semi-monthly appearance here on the network. Uh, I've got him doing some triple feature, a bunch of triple features, but the occasional long road to ruin the original that started it all. So the next time Sean will be appearing on the show will be April 17th. We're going to be looking at some comic or comic adjacent properties, Valerian and the city of a thousand planets based on a French comic, John Carter, the Disney bomb, that was based on the series of sci-fi novels and Barbarella back to French comics again. Um, on May 15th, it's all about porn. My favorite thing. We're going to be looking at the new slasher movie X, which is they're shooting a porn. Murders happen. Fantastic. Um, and then Red Rocket about a porn star who returns home to his uh, rural town. And then the classic Boogie Nights. I am finally going to sit down and watch this thing and we're going to talk about it. In theory, if these movies all come out when they're supposed to... <laughs> And we're able to look at them in a timely fashion. Uh, he'll be doing a Damn You Hollywood with me. We're going to be looking at Master and M-I-O-K to kick off uh, Pride Month in June. Speaking of Pride Month, we've got uh, two different triple features, six movies, looking at the good, the bad, and the ugly of uh, Pride-oriented features. First, the bad. <laughs> June 6th, we've got Stonewall, Basic Instinct, and The Naked Lunch. And then on June 26, we've got Benedetta, Brokeback Mountain, and My Own Private Idaho, a classic in queer film. Uh, and then July 31st, we've got uh, the, it's currently out in theaters and wide release, but we're going to wait for it to be on PBOD and review it here as a triple feature anchor. Uh, Studio 666 starring the Foo Fighters, Tenacious D in the Pick of Destiny, and Detroit Rock City. So that'll take us all the way into August. Uh, besides that, what we got going on this week, uh, we've got tomorrow, uh, <laughs> Chris Bailey, if you've ever wanted to hear me gush about a movie, it's going to be tomorrow because the Batman, 
It was everything I've ever wanted a Batman movie to be and more. I loved it. I am in love with this movie. I would leave my wife for this movie and marry it and live in the country. I, I just think it's the best thing ever. I'm so I was vibrating when that movie was over. I was so happy. Just I the guy who yelled at people, stop clapping at the end of movies, you seals, was clapping, standing ovation, just blowing kisses at the screen. That's how much I love this movie. It was so good. Uh, so I will tell you all about it. And then Sam McCartney and Robert Winfrey will tell me I'm wrong. But that that's okay. Andrew Graham will be there to be my tag team partner. Um, speaking of tag team partners, myself, Chris Bailey, uh, we'll be reviewing AEW Revolution. And in the evening, the Metal Hammer of Doom, Jesse takes over. And we're going to talk Allegion. Damn. Num, 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 num. Um, Pat Mullen and I will be doing Chapter 8 of The Four Kings of Boxing. We're looking at Hagler versus Hearns. And then I'm on vacation, so it's a lot of canned heat. We had a lot of canned heat for Batman. We got more canned heat coming out in next week. The Hunger Games Part 1 and 2 podcast that we did a few years ago, Sean and I. That'll be on uh, March 12th and 13th. Then we've got uh, me debating my best friend, which one was better, Revenge of the Sith or Return of the Jedi. Sean moderated that debate. It's the 30, 40-year anniversary of the publication of V for Vendetta, so we are re-airing our comic strip for V for Vendetta, comparing the book to the movie. The uh, for the celebrate St. Patrick's Day, the day before, we will be uh, presenting our review of House of Pain, fine malt lyrics on its 30th anniversary, or close to it. And then on actual St. Patrick's Day, myself and Jason Teasley will be reviewing Leprechaun, Jennifer Aniston's finest work by far, <laughs> also starring Warwick Davis. And we end Canned Heat Week my vacation week uh, with a re-airing of our damn you Hollywood London has fallen. And then when I come back from the Dominican Republic, Stuart Lang and I are going to be doing an alternative commentary for Thor versus heavy uh, Eddie, the heaviest fight in the history of boxing. We'll have a re-airing of Voltron season two legendary defender. And then in the evening, Daniel Lasby, my new best friend and I will be going to doing an ESPN uh, fight night. Ed, Edgar Belanga versus Steve Rolls. I'm sure I mispronounced that. I'm sorry, Pat Mullen. All right. So for Sean Comer, do your line about colors. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Never dull your colors for someone else's canvas. Damn right. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, for me, I'm Mark Rattledge. Be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>